Mr. One of the greatest compliments that we can get is to know that people think about it through the week. To come and ask a question about it, to have a comment or anything says they paid attention, it, it actually did make a difference. And so I don't think that we're so arrogant that when we present lessons and worship and all of this that we think, man, this is going to change someone's life. But I think that's what we hope for, um, and I think we should. So I appreciate that so much just to know uh, that the words were taken to heart and that, um, that you've carried that with you all week. So thank you. Well, this morning, um, I want you to get a picture in your head of a mountain. Maybe a mountain that you've been to before. I'm not sure how many of you are uh, adventurers and, and like to see mountains. Some of you more so than others, and maybe some of you, well, Dad took us on vacation one time, and he drug us through the wilderness, and he made us crawl up to this mountain, and we finally got to go home. I'm not sure what your experience is with mountains. Um, but I hope that, that each of us has been near a mountain or on a mountain at one point to where you have the mental picture of, of what that looks like. There are a lot of different mountain ranges. I grew up uh, visiting Tennessee a lot and being in the Smoky Mountains. It was really wonderful. Um, my relatives would come down here to Texas and, and we would describe directions and say, go over this hill and then you'll turn left. And, you know, they never saw the hill. They're like, that wasn't a hill. Uh, you don't have hills here, especially in West Texas, you know, and especially not mountains. So your view of a mountain may be relative to where you are, but my picture of a mountain comes from Wilderness Trek. We would take a group with the youth group and go up to Colorado and actually climb a mountain. So we would see the mountains from a distance. We would go and camp out before the mountain, and then we'd drive to our mountain and um, then hike up the mountain all week. And finally, we would get to summit. And so I have all of these images of the trail that we were on, the, the leaves, the fresh air, the streams, um, and then finally the summit where we look out and we see everything. I hope that you have some picture of that in your head and you can picture that because we're going to journey with the Israelites to a mountain. Um, this lesson today is not necessarily a 4th of July lesson, but it does fit. Uh, the lesson today actually is a culmination of everything that, that we in the college ministry have studied over the past year, talking about just journeying towards God, and also a culmination of uh, a topic that I was given at a camp to speak at recently, which was, uh, the topic was on the mountain with God. And so we're really going to begin there, and uh, I think we need to, to catch up a little bit on the story because we're going we're gonna to review Exodus 19, but a lot has happened before that. And I want to start with the house of Jacob. They're in their own land, and Jacob had children, and he had Joseph. And we all know the story of Joseph. He's sold into slavery and, and basically viewed as dead for a long time. And Joseph goes and makes, takes the long route and ends up in the house of Pharaoh. And ends up over the whole land of Egypt... Um, nothing happens in Egypt that's, that's not ordained by him in his own words. And then finally, his dad, Jacob, um, in a time of famine, the whole family ends up coming to Egypt. It's a wonderful story. They end up there, and then uh, time passes. And so they go from maybe 66 or 70 people that came with Jacob, depending on what you read, uh, Genesis or Exodus. And over time, they grow into this great nation of Israel uh, and all of these people. 
But we know the story also in that a Pharaoh came to power that didn't know Joseph and didn't really know the people, and they just got really aggravated with them. And so Israel, uh, Jacob's people, were enslaved. And they were uh, in bondage and slavery, oppressed. And where is this God that told Jacob, it's okay to go to Egypt uh, because I'll make you a great nation? The great nation is all of a sudden um, in slavery, and then Moses is born. And he escapes, and again, into the house of Pharaoh. um, And after he kills a man, flees to Midian, gets married, and then goes up to Mount Horeb and meets God in a bush. And God says, you're going to go back to Egypt, and you're going to save my people and you're going to deliver them from Egypt. So Moses does. He has a talk with Pharaoh, and he, he encourages Pharaoh. He, he begs Pharaoh to let the people go. Now before we go on, I hope that we can picture what it must have been like to be before Pharaoh. I'm not sure a lot of people ever saw him or heard him, but to be one of the people to get to go and to talk to Pharaoh and I guess have the privilege of asking, can you let these people go? who worked for you all the time. It had to have been an intimidating thing. Maybe almost a terrifying thing to know the power that he had and that no one would probably miss you once you stepped foot in that palace. If you made the wrong move or said the wrong words, that was it. You had to get a little bit nervous. But anyway, Moses goes in. He meets with Pharaoh. uh, He works the miraculous plagues uh, with the power of God. And finally, Pharaoh releases Israel and says, leave. And if that wasn't good enough, God circles them back in the desert and almost lures the Egyptians back out to come and get them. And God buffers the, the Egyptian army with the Israelites and stands between them in a cloud while he parts the Red Sea and they escape on dry ground and they finally flee to the desert. Now I know I've left a lot out and I know I haven't gone through a lot of detail, but what we can discuss in a moment, in a minute, it's hard for us to grasp that, that that was their lives. Their whole identity had been lost in Egypt. Their land had been lost. And how long did they look for a new land, a new place to be? And where is that God of Jacob? So as we recap that, I think that we have to try to get our minds around this story and realize the power. It wasn't just like, hey, they were camped out in Egypt for a little bit and then they, they came home after a week-long trip. There was no home. Their home was actually Egypt, and they might have been more comfortable there because they didn't know where else to go. So when we read this, and we read that they crossed the Red Sea, and God delivered them, can you imagine the emotion that they felt? Miriam breaks into song. If they would have had fireworks, they would have shot all the fireworks and said, we're saved, we're delivered, we're freed, and here we go, and we're finally We thought Pharaoh was powerful, and we thought Pharaoh was um, intimidating maybe, but we finally get to go and be with God. We finally get to go and meet this God who kept his word, who was faithful, and kept his covenant. Let's go and let's meet God. Well, let's do that. I'm going to be summarizing some portions from Exodus 19. I'm not going to read all of it, uh, but I will read a little bit of it. So if you'd like to follow along, I I really encourage you to go back and read all of this. But on the third anniversary, the third month, from when they were delivered, the Israelites walk up to this, this mountain, Mount Sinai, 
And they're, they're about to encounter God on a mountain. It's hard for us, maybe in West Texas, to, to picture mountains, but I think it's even harder for us to picture meeting God. As I read through this, I think, man, they've got to be excited. This has to be like a reunion between their long-lost God, that where are you, God? We're in slavery. Um, we're oppressed. Where are you? And then finally God shows up, and finally we are with God. And so they get to go, and they get to be with God and meet Him in His presence. So three months after they're delivered, they find themselves before Mount Sinai, and they camp out. And I want you to just step into the shoes of the Israelites here and, and picture what's going on. Um, Moses goes up the mountain. God calls him up. And God tells Moses, this is what you're to say to the Israelites. He reminds them, and he's going to tell Moses to remind the Israelites, you've seen what I've done. You've seen what I did to Egypt, right? Remember? Who could forget? You've seen what I've done. You've seen how I brought you out like on, on eagle's wings and delivered you the power that was there, how I'm above anything else. You know that. It's without a doubt. And if you keep my covenant and you remain faithful to it, then I'm going to make you my own people, my treasured possession. And that's the relationship that we're going to have. And I'm going to give you a part of this kingdom that's my very own. So he tells Moses to go and tell them. And um, I debated whether to uh, walk up and down the steps each time Moses went up and down the mountain, but I never, know, I never noticed how many times he went up and down the mountain. So I don't know how great of a mountain this is, but this could take a while. Um, being on a mountain, if, if Moses had to go up and down a, a really significant mountain, but keep in mind how many times Moses goes up and down the mountain. Anyway, God tells him, tell the Israelites these things. So Moses goes down the mountain and he tells Israel all of these things. You know what God has done. You've seen it for yourselves. And here's the deal. You stay faithful to God. You keep his covenant. And God is going to make you his very own people, his treasured possession. And if you read the story, the Israelites respond. And they say, we'll do everything the Lord commands. I mean, what else? I mean, we owe him everything, right? And we can relate to this. Christ has laid down his life. We owe him everything. You, you can picture them saying, this is easy. There's no other answer. We'll do anything. And so they give this answer to Moses. Moses goes back up, and God says, I want to warn you, I'm going to come down on the mountain in a dense cloud. Okay. Well, let me tell you what the people said, God. The people said, we'll do anything for you. And then there's that little cloud part. So if you follow the story, uh, I just can't help but see the irony of a people that has to be excited and what they're about to experience. Because when we talk about let's go before God, let's meet with God, that's a great feeling. They're about to be very, very surprised. God tells Moses, go down and tell the people, Consecrate yourselves. Take three days. Wash your clothes. Consecrate yourselves. You're about to meet me, and you're about to go to the foot of the mountain. Um, and he tells Moses, I want you to prepare limits around the mountain so the people don't force their way up the mountain and see me. Um, it can't happen. I don't know what kind of limits these are. Uh, if, if he wanted Moses to set up like the big barricades 
or like just put a ribbon around the mountain, say don't cross the ribbon, put tape on the ground, don't cross the tape. Maybe it's like the little, uh, the line barriers at movie theaters, you know, the little fuzzy uh, loopy hooks, you know, just you cannot cross that. And so they're like, you know, there's a little thing there, I can't go past that. Uh, maybe it's one of those barriers, I don't know. But God says, go down to the bottom of the mountain and set limits so nobody can force their way up and touch me or touch the mountain. If you read, uh, I'm going to read a part of this, Exodus 19, verses 10 through 13. The Lord said to Moses, go to the people and consecrate them today and tomorrow. Have them wash their clothes and be ready by the third day because on that day, the Lord will come down on Mount Sinai in the sight of all the people. Put limits for the people around the mountain and tell them, be careful that you don't go up the mountain or touch the foot of it. Whoever touches the mountain shall surely be put to death. He shall surely be stoned or shot with arrows. Not a hand is to be laid on him. Whether man or animal, he shall not be permitted to live. Only when the ram's horn sounds a long blast may they go up to the mountain. So we begin to see this picture of God that you thought God was awesome when he was in the cloud between the, the Egyptians and the Israelites. And now we come to this mountain and Moses comes back down with a message that says, get ready, consecrate yourselves. We're going to take three days to do it. Wash your clothes. And by the way, don't cross the, the limits. But we're about to encounter God. Just a little further down, we read of what happens. And you know, keeping the theme of, of movies, if you ever watch a movie, um, what is the number one bad omen that you could think of in a movie? What happens? The thunder, the lightning, or the rain starts to pour, right? If, if it's raining and you know, somebody's having a wedding in a movie and it starts to rain, like, I don't know. Thunder and lightning, bad omen for a movie, right? Well, in, in Exodus 19, verse 16, on the morning of the third day, there was thunder and lightning with a, with a thick cloud over the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast. Everyone in the camp trembled. Then Moses led the people out to, to the camp to meet with God, and they stood at the foot of the mountain. Mount Sinai was covered with smoke because the Lord descended on it in fire. The smoke billowed up from it like smoke from a furnace. The whole mountain trembled violently, and the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder. Then Moses spoke, and the voice of God answered him. I bet they were thinking, are we at the right mountain? Weren't we just delivered by this great God? And then, yes, we're going back to home, and we're in this desert, and we camp out in front of this mountain, and we prepared for three days to see God, and we wake up, and there's thunder and lightning. And, you know, this isn't like thunder and lightning written on the page. This is the thunder and lightning that, you know, when you hear it, it wakes you up, and you know there's thunder and lightning. And it wasn't just that for effect, but they look up at this mountain, and it's smoldering because God came down on it in fire. And they're standing at the foot of it, or at a distance, and Moses says, let's go to the foot of the mountain. So I bet the pace was a little bit slower than when they ran through the, the sea and just were free in the desert to go anywhere they'd like. I mean, let's go. It's like a punt returner in football that breaks through the, the line and just set off going to score the touchdown. Maybe that's how they left Egypt, but now going towards this mountain, there has to be a little hesitancy. Who would go towards that mountain? As we read, 
Um, God descends on the mountain after he speaks to Moses. Moses goes up the mountain, and then the Lord tells Moses, go down, I just got up here, go down and warn the people, be sure you don't cross the limits. And Moses tells God, oh, well, that's, it's okay, I don't have to, because remember, you told me to tell them to set up the limits, and so I told them, so it's no big deal. They won't cross, and God says, what kind of limits did you put up? Did you put up the little movie theater loops, or did you put up the barricade? I'm afraid you didn't put good enough limits because I don't want them touching this mountain. Go back down and remind them, don't touch. Can you imagine? You hesitantly walk up to this mountain. You finally get there. You wait on Moses to get to the top, and you see him coming back down. You think, oh, that's not so bad. And then he just says, I just wanted to remind you, don't cross the limits. I've got to go back up. (laughs) This is a bad story. God reminds them, maybe it's because he's so loving, but he reminds them, don't touch the limits. And then you have this portion where, guess what? He gives them their first gift. He's told them, I'm going to make you my people. The people answer, we'll do anything you want. And then he goes, here is the gift that is just going to symbolize our relationship. And guess what it is? Ten commandments. It's like a Christmas present that somebody gets and they open it and they're like, oh, Thank you so much. And God's sitting there and he says, you know, there's another one around here somewhere and there's like 613 or, or something like that. There's more. This is not good. As you read after the commandment part in chapter 20, verse 18, listen to what the Israelites do. And this is really important. When the people saw the thunder and lightning and heard the trumpet and saw the mountain and smoke, they trembled with fear. They stayed at a distance And said to Moses, speak to us yourselves and we will listen, but do not have God speak to us or we will die. And then Moses tried to reassure them, don't worry, don't be afraid. Do you realize what's happened? God has delivered his people. They come before this mountain. They're about to be reunited with God. And the sight and the experience is so intense that the people stayed at a distance. And the very person that they questioned at the first, should we even follow you, Moses? They're more than happy to follow him now. And they say, you go talk to God, and we'll do whatever you say. We just don't want to talk to him. The people of Israel were at a distance. Their deliverer was a distant deliverer. Their God was a different, a distant God. Their relationship was really put in jeopardy here because of their response. I wonder... How many of us live at a distance before God? I mean, we don't have that many reasons to unless we've been programmed to think of God in this way that, you know, if you do the wrong thing or, you know, you say something. I hear a lot of times, um, you can't say that word. We're in a church building. You can't say that. We're in the Christian Campus Center. Like, God's going to strike you down if you say that inside a certain building. But we can say it everywhere else. Um, But, you know, maybe you're programmed that God is just going to come down with that fire if you do a certain thing. Maybe we live at a distance. I hope you can imagine fully what happened in Exodus 19. Are you ready to be on the mountain with God? Not many people would be after this story. And maybe we shouldn't be ready. Anybody in their right mind who has any sense of self-protection would not do this. 
they would probably scramble away as fast as they could if they were on that mountain. Are you appreciative of your deliverance spiritually? Or are you living like, as long as I'm somewhere between the slavery in Egypt and God's presence on the mountain, and I'm somewhere in between, I'm okay. Because we get comfortable, and as long as there's not a certain extreme, we tend to get comfortable with that. Maybe you are, maybe you're not. Did Israel ever recover? How could you recover from that and draw near to a God after that's happened? The passage that um, I read from Isaiah looks forward to a time where it's better than Mount Sinai. It was a reading about Mount Zion, and we've sang about that today, and our psalm was about Mount Zion today, and it talks about a better mountain. And that's really what this message is about, is that we don't worship at the foot of Mount Sinai. And we shouldn't worship at a distance. Because if you read the part in in Isaiah, and I'm not going to read that, but I'm going to make a few points here. I love the way this is put. The mountain of the Lord's temple will be established as chief above all other mountains, above the hills. And we know what happened at the hills, the high places. That's where the idols were worshipped. God's mountain is going to be set above all things, and all nations will stream up to it. Do you get that visual picture? Where if we were at Mount Sinai, people might just stream away from it. The Mount Zion, people, all nations are going to stream up to this mountain someday. You have this welcoming picture here. And those people are going to go to God and they're going to seek out His ways and appreciate Him so much that they want to follow Him. It's not like a burdensome Ten Commandments. It's not like all these laws that were unappreciated, but they will approach God and seek Him out and look for Him. But there's a twist that I noticed when I was preaching for this camp in June that I didn't notice all year studying this passage. Who are all these nations? Well, I don't know who all they are, but it mentions all nations. And then it ends with an appeal to a certain group, the house of Jacob. The very people that God allowed to go to Egypt and then rescued to the desert and saw God before the mountain, that is the people that it says, that Isaiah says, Come, O house of Jacob, let us walk in the light of the Lord. God's own people. All nations are going to stream to God, but His own people are at a distance. And Isaiah says, you of all people, we should be right up here on the mountain showing people where to go. We should be in the light already. We shouldn't be hanging back watching all these other people learn to appreciate God. I think of it this way. Maybe growing up, you went to a friend's house and you saw their parents and you just saw their house and how they lived and you just, you just said to, to your friends, Man, your parents are so cool. I mean, like, they're way more cool than my parents. And then your friend is like, uh, they're okay. They're not as good as you think. I wonder if the Israelites were like that. If all these nations come, and they walk by the house of Jacob on the way up to this mountain, and they say, have you heard about the mountain of the Lord? Mount Zion? The God of Jacob? And God of Jacob, the, the house of Jacob is sitting there saying, he's okay. I mean, yeah, he's been faithful, but... We're not touching the mountain. Have you ever misperceived someone? I think that's what they did to God. I had a professor, and uh, we've had family in the hospital. We've had all these things going on while I was in school. And so I would email him and say, okay, here's a deadline. 
there's a paper or a test and I'm not going to be able to do it on time. And I would have this legitimate excuse and I would email him and give him like a paragraph of, okay, this is for real. I'm not just making this up to get out of this assignment. And I felt bad. And then I would get this reply that was like three words, that will be fine. And then maybe sign his name. I was so aggravated because it wasn't even acknowledged hardly. Or he would say something like, well, do what you got to do. But never, it's okay. And I despised him because I thought, I feel guilty already and now I'm great. Maybe I should just go ahead and finish the paper. And I looked at this professor with, I mean, I just thought he was a jerk. And so when it came time to do comps, my exit exams, I had a list of all these professors that I could choose, and I had to choose two or three, and I knew of one that I especially didn't want, and here's this list, and guess what? That guy, I had had him for more classes and knew of him better, and he knew me better than many of these other professors, and I just, okay, I'll take him. So we get to comps, and I'm sitting there, and we're talking, and you know, you're kind of put to the test here, and they ask you questions. I didn't realize that he had just finished a, a sabbatical and finished a book that he was writing, and he'd, he'd been doing all this stuff previously. But when we met for comps, he was pleasant. I expressed how my, my graduate experience was, and he said, you know, but you've had your hands full. You've had a pretty, you know, complicated time. And my head spun because I thought, who is this? And that moment changed my whole perception of this person. I didn't realize, I didn't understand maybe what he was going through. All I knew is what I was going through. And I totally misperceived this person, probably unfairly. I learned a little bit about how I should respond to emails to somebody else, but I totally misperceived this person. I wonder if we do that with God. If we look at God and we think of this God that comes down on the mountain in fire and leaves everything and His footprint everywhere He goes, there's smoke and there's thunder and lightning and it's the stereotypical picture of God that the world has. He's going to zap you. Or I wonder if there's a better picture that we should have as God's own children that points towards a mountain where we stream up to the mountain. That's the challenge this morning is How do you view God? Are you standing before Mount Zion or are you standing before Mount Sinai? I want to end with a passage in Hebrews and the Hebrew writer will not let you go without hearing exactly where you stand. The Hebrew writer in in Hebrews 12, uh, verse 18, it says, You have not come to a mountain that can be touched. You haven't come to a mountain that's burning with fire or to darkness and gloom and storm, to a trumpet blast or to such a voice speaking words that those who heard it begged that no further word be spoken to them because they could not bear what was commanded. If even an animal touches the mountain, it must be stoned. The sight was so terrifying that Moses said, I'm trembling with fear. We haven't come to that mountain. And the Hebrew writer won't let you think that you're at that mountain. He reminds us it's different. And he goes on and he says, but you have come. You are there. You've come to Mount Zion, to the heavenly Jerusalem, the city of the living God. You have come to thousands upon thousands of angels in joyful assembly, to the church of the firstborn, 
whose names are written in heaven. You have come to God, the judge of all men, to the spirits of righteous men made perfect. You've come to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the, uh, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. I think when you think of mountains, you know, we haven't seen Mount Zion, but we've read about Mount Sinai, and if you think about mountains, maybe that's the mountain that we think about. Maybe your religion has been framed in that cast that we worship and we obey because we are in fear of God. And I don't want us to leave thinking, well, we should have no reverence and no fear of God. We need that healthy fear. But the Israelites were handicapped because do you realize, did you hear, they worshiped at a distance. Christians don't have to do that. Christ changed everything on the mountain that he carried the cross up. And that tore down those limits around the mountain and it says, all nations, come up to me, come up to God and just be with me. You don't have to worship at a distance anymore. Even though we try sometimes and we're comfortable, we don't have to do that. If you kept reading in Hebrews, it talks about don't refuse God. Because just like he shook the mountain back there at Mount Sinai, everything will be shaken again. And what's going to stand after everything is shaken? And the Hebrew writer tells you what's going to stand is the unshakable kingdom that we're a part of. There's no need for fear. We have confidence before God. And it says, since that's how it is, let us worship with reverence and awe. Not so much reverence that we can't even get to the mountain and we worship at a distance, but enough of a balanced view of worship that we worship with reverence and awe and we are so in awe of God, but we're welcomed up that mountain. I hope that as Christians we realize that we have come before Mount Zion and maybe we aren't at the top yet in God's absolute full presence, but that's where we are. And so my challenge for us today is that Make sure that you don't mistake God for who He isn't. That you don't have a limited view of God that tells you this is only how God is, but take the full picture of God and His love and let your worship reflect that. And also, what mountain do you stand before and worship at? Because to me, the mountain of Zion calls us not only to stand at the foot of it and worship from a distance, but it calls us to begin a journey towards God. And I think God doesn't want us standing still, but He wants us to come closer and closer to Him. He's going to meet us. We should go to meet Him. We're going to sing a song that actually talks about the fact that we will assemble on a mountain. And that's our hope. It's not a bad thing. There's no reason to be afraid of this mountain. But I want to challenge all of you that if you have a need to just begin more of a journey instead of being standing still, I want you to do that. Um, I don't know if our staff and elders, we haven't talked about it in the staff meeting, but if you, if you have a need, we'll be ready. Uh, but that's my challenge, is just that we worship God at the appropriate mountain and that we understand who He is because of the difference that Christ has made in our lives. Let's stand and sing. Mountain